Informing America's farmers and ranchers. It's Adams on Agriculture. Produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Here's your host, Mike Adams. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Adams on Agriculture. Thank you for joining us as we kick off a new week and a new month. Hope you are well. We appreciate you letting us be part of your day. Well, so much going on in the world and so much of it negative. We'll take a look at some of the issues we're dealing with in agriculture. The pork industry continues to reel from the impact of COVID-19. And we will talk with Nick Giordano with the National Pork Producers Council about their call for more help. Concerns about the tensions between the U.S. and China, now the Hong Kong issue. We'll talk with Jake Parker, Senior Vice President of the U.S.-China Business Council, get his thoughts on uh, the trade relations between the U.S. and China. And we'll talk weather with ETM meteorologist Bryce Anderson as we turn the calendar to June. But we're going to start things off with Sarah Wyant, Editor and President of AgriPulse Communications. Sarah, thanks for joining us. Just when we thought it couldn't get any worse with all we've been through the last uh, few months, Well, over the weekend, it did get worse. Absolutely, and it is so sad to see uh, not only what has happened with the very, very sad death of George Floyd, but then to see um, peaceful protests turn into riots in places where a lot of folks, I'm sure um, friends there with your station in Fargo, to see the the damages that were done and places like Davenport, Iowa, in addition to these very large protests in Los Angeles, New York, D.C., and of course, uh, uh, Minneapolis. It's it's just been heartbreaking to, on all fronts, Mike. I put this out on Twitter over the weekend because watching the coverage of the protests which turned into uh, into riots, it reminded me of 1999. I was in Seattle to cover the WTO meeting, and of course that uh, became a, you know a situation like we're seeing today, where these protest groups came in, took over parts of the city, and I remember walking down the streets, tear gas in the air, and windows being broken, and these protests going on. And I talked with some of the protesters, and they admitted to me. They were brought in from outside. They were brought in even from other states. And they didn't even know what the WTO was. They were just brought in to protest. And that's part of what we're seeing here. These 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 uh, groups that protest become very organized, and they mobilize quickly and, and put people out all over the country uh, to, to be parts of these things. And you have people that uh, are from the outside and not even knowing really, you know, Uh, What the issue is, they're just there to be protesters and, in many cases, unfortunately, doing damage. Yes, there's certainly been some evidence of that, and I think that's a a good parallel that you're drawing. You know, one of the things that I was reading about the folks in Minneapolis is that these poor store owners who have been unable to do business for quite a long time are now looking at the, you know, just complete ruination. Mm -hmm. And you saw some of the folks in neighborhoods go out and try to defend their own neighborhood because they have to still live there after all these rioters have left. So it's just another unfortunate economic uh, problem on top of what, of course, is a very big cultural problem. Yeah, and, and the thing that struck me, even in 99, when I was in Seattle, I was amazed at how organized these people were and how they could communicate with each other and and move people around and block off 
access to certain parts of, of a major U.S. city. Well, now with the technology, with cell phones and things like that that they have, uh, it is frightening how how they could just move in, organize, take over, and orchestrate some of this. So, uh, yeah, our country has a lot of healing to do, not just from the coronavirus, but from a lot of other things as well. Uh, well, Sarah, meanwhile, uh, on the agricultural front, we're kind of looking to see what is the Senate going to do with any more aid, and certainly ag groups are continuing to say we need more help. Well, you may have seen that our Jeff Nally caught up with Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell last week when he was back home in Kentucky, and the Majority Leader has said when the Senate comes back, as they are this week, that the They'll take up the PPP bill that was passed by the House uh, the previous week. And there's going to be a lot of conversations about how this will be addressed, but it sounds like it's going to be a standalone bill that will extend the time for repayment. Uh, I'm not sure if it'll be all the way to 24 weeks as the House requested, but it'll be longer than the eight weeks in the current law. And there's also going to be an effort to look at whether or not the payroll threshold, now at 75%, could be reduced to 6%. So I do think there's going to be a lot more flexibility passed as the Senate considers uh, the payroll protection program. And then longer term, Mike, as we look at later in June and July, another round of coronavirus relief. Mm-hmm. And on the trade front, a lot of concerns between the U.S. and China. There are stories that China is stopping purchases right now. I did see something from our friend Arlen Suderman with INTLFC Stone that uh, their people are saying this is temporary, that they've kind of got enough stocks on hand right now. But still, it, it shows the, the concerns about the strained relationship moving forward. And now you have the Hong Kong issue. Uh, so a lot of questions about the, the phase one trade deal. Yes, your uh, listeners might have seen uh, what we published on Friday, that when President Trump said he would take action to eliminate the policy exemptions that currently give Hong Kong special treatment, we talked to several trade analysts then, and they didn't see a lot of harmful damage. And even over the weekend, we saw analysts in Hong Kong talking about the fact that they didn't think this was as strong of retaliation as they might have expected, and so some of their stocks were actually going up as a result. But over the weekend, we've seen a couple of reports, and um, we'll have another story out here shortly, too, on our website, talking about the fact that the Chinese have taken this action. They've apparently purchased quite a few cargoes from Brazil to replenish some current needs on soybeans. But Brazil's got very tight stocks as well. And so I don't know how much of this is really a temporary shot across the bow, so to speak, to save face for the Chinese and whether or not they will have to return to the U.S. soybean market later, as as Arlen has discussed. And, you know, the other issue, we're not through with COVID-19. I, I was thinking about this over the weekend. In our news cycles today, even big stories get bumped out of the headlines pretty quickly in a day or two in some cases, maybe a little longer for a major, like an event like a hurricane or something. But look how long COVID-19 has dominated the news cycle for weeks and months, and now it took something like the violence over the weekend to kind of bump COVID-19 off the front uh, headline, but it's still a huge issue. Yes, I was thinking about that too, Mike. I mean, it's just how fast the news cycle can change on all these issues, and you know, everybody's really worried about infecting each other from the Lake of the Ozarks swimming pool over Memorial Day, yeah. and now... 
think of all the risk of infections from these people mm-hmm. being together. Some did have masks on, but a lot of them weren't social distancing, and um, many did not have masks on. So who's tracking where all those cases are going to evolve? It's really right. scary in so many ways. It really is. Sarah, thanks so much. Stay safe, and we'll talk again next week. Thanks, Mike. Thank you. Sarah Wyan, Editor, President, AgriPulse Communications. Up next, the weather as we turn the calendar to June. We'll talk with DTM meteorologist Bryce Anderson. That's next on AOA. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. Well, we take a look at the June weather picture with DTM meteorologist Bryce Anderson. Bryce, thanks for joining us. What's uh, in store this week ahead around the country? Mike, it's a uh, definite uh, week of summertime temperatures over much of the central part of the country. Um, There's the um, building of high-pressure ridging in the upper atmosphere over the north-central part of the U.S. going on right now, and uh, it's going to lead to temperatures that are going to be widespread in the 80s and 90s uh, from the Mississippi Valley west today, and we'll start to see a little bit of that heat uh, creep eastward over the next couple days as well. Uh, fortunately, it's not a long-lasting round of uh, real hot conditions, and along with that, uh, we've we still got uh, a few uh, occurrences of uh, shower and thunderstorm action that are going to mean that this is not just a completely hot and dry pattern over the Midwest. Now in the southwestern plains, it's still going to be on the dry side and uh, quite hot uh, west of Great Bend, Kansas. But other than that, um, you have to look at this as being a a pretty uh, workable situation when you think about overall uh, crop conditions right now. Yeah, I was going to ask you, as we heat up this week, uh, are we going to kick off thunderstorms along with that? Yes, we will. And uh, there could be some locally severe weather that develops with these thunderstorms because um, you get temperatures into the 90s and uh, factor in the uh, very... um, very generous rounds. Uh, maybe that's an understatement of soil moisture that we have. There's a lot of low-level moisture that's going to be uh, drawn into the atmosphere with that uh, hotter pattern, and so you get things uh, kind of charged up for additional thunderstorm activity. I think that we're going to see the um, the most notable uh, thunderstorm formation from, say, about uh, Bismarck, North Dakota, uh, southeast clear to Memphis, Tennessee, and then on east. It's not going to be any one particular real heavy round of rainfall, but we'll have uh, several periods of uh, quarter to three-quarter inch locally heavier rains probably from Wednesday on. Uh, the first couple days this week are a little bit drier. We're getting some showers right now uh, in the Mississippi Valley, the upper Mississippi Valley especially, but uh, later on this week, we'll see we'll still see that that kind of activity. And uh, the only area that that gets completely left out is that southwestern plains sector uh, into the Texas Panhandle and then on west. Uh, they're going to have uh, not only the drier conditions, but 
the temperatures are going to be uh, probably about 15 to 20 degrees above normal in that part of the country, and that's you know that's just uh, the the drought feeding on itself and the heat feeding off the drought and that whole cycle just kind of reinforcing itself all the way through. Are we looking at a potentially more active hurricane slash tornado season this year? Well, the uh, tropical season has already started out uh, on a pretty energetic note uh, with, what, uh, two identified systems. We had Arthur and Bertha already before today. You know, today is the official start of the tropical weather season. Mm-hmm. But the, um, the Gulf of Mexico is very warm. A lot of energy is, uh, is available to, to uh, fuel up storm activity. Uh, the Western Atlantic is also uh, pretty warm as well, and so uh, I think that we are going to see that. Uh, that's what just about every public and private forecast is calling for. As far as uh, tornado uh, development is concerned, uh, it could be a little bit more of an active season here in the month of June, and I think especially uh, with uh, some of these uh, thunderstorms that fire up, if if we uh, if we get a a real strong temperature contrast going on, that is uh, really a prime uh, type of uh, factor in uh, tornado uh, possibility. So uh, that's, I think, uh, always a part of things when you have this kind of heating that we have going on and then the uh, active uh, frontal passage that we're going to see. Talking with DTM meteorologist Bryce Anderson. But overall, Bryce, you're still not predicting uh, a terribly hot, dry summer overall, right? You you, you don't see it just no. become, turning off hot and staying hot and dry all summer. No, it, it sure isn't acting that way, Mike. Uh, with the uh, kind of soil moisture that we've got to uh, get into the season and uh, this uh, sort of uh, unsettled uh, prospect, uh, in the uh, in the air masses, uh, like we're seeing this week, you know we have this this bubble of heat that quite likely by Thursday and Friday is going to be already sliding away from uh, say the uh, north central plains more into the Great Lakes and then toward uh, the interior northeast. I mean uh, the 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 uh, the lack of any real well defined uh, solid upper level high kind of anchoring itself into the interior of the country uh, is is pretty much an indicator that it's not going to uh, be a, a real pervasive hot and dry pattern. And then, like I say, whenever, the, uh, whenever it does get hotter, there's so much uh, moisture available over especially the Midwest and the Northern Plains that uh, you get these, uh, you know, these little bursts of uh, of moisture just kind of riding up into the heat and uh, if there's any sort of a a little bit of a a, uh, a break in in the the uh, hot air bubble then you get the prospect of thunderstorms firing up on on just sort of uh, a pop-up type of basis and that in and of itself can start the the uh, whole mechanism going to kind of tear away at that heat and uh, limit its uh, its not only spreading, but limit the stability of uh, that whole high pressure bubble. And uh, that's that's a big feature in uh, keeping a, a hot and dry pattern from just setting in 
and and becoming uh, pretty much locked in for a long period of time. So it sounds like we're done talking about cold weather for a while. I think we are, yeah. <laughs> Finally, <laughs> it is going to be a little cooler out in the northwest, but you know that's that's kind of typical. But uh, we finally finally were able to to shake loose of that. The the thing I'd like to see is uh, maybe just a little bit more uh, sunlight, uh, a few a few less rounds of cloud cover, because growing degree day totals have been uh, a little hard to find, a little hard to come by. We're we're lagging by quite a bit here in the Midwest, and so we do need to have some hotter conditions and maybe a little bit more sun to uh, lead those growing degree day totals into a more positive direction. What about South America? Well, the uh, pattern in South America is still looking a little bit better for southern Brazil on rainfall this week, drier in Mato Grosso. They are harvesting their corn crop right now, their safrina crop in Mato Grosso. But in southern Brazil, the uh, rainfall mic is probably coming too late to uh, really help out much with their late-season corn. In fact, uh, the uh, ag agency out of uh, Paraná State over the weekend uh, put out a projection for the uh, corn crop to be more than 10% below a year ago, and uh, that's uh, a pretty notable uh, drawdown in terms of uh, corn production out of Paraná. That is the number two corn production state in Brazil, so that's noteworthy right there. Europe and Russia? The uh, rainfall is uh, still in a pretty favorable trend for the Black Sea region, Ukraine and Russia. In fact, this week we'll see probably uh, a half to one and a half inch rainfall again to add to what they've had already. Uh, the last month has been uh, pretty good for rainfall in that part of the world. Now, farther west, France and Germany have been, have been quite dry, but they will have uh, the mechanics uh, in the atmosphere getting better for rainfall this week. So they will see some showers, I'd say a tenth to maybe three-quarters of an inch, locally heavier. They've had some loss in the wheat crop prospect, but I think maybe it's kind of leveled off, and uh, this batch of uh, showers would at least help that. All right, Bryce, good to talk with you. Thanks a lot. Uh, I'm going to put my coat away now, okay? Sounds good, Mike. Uh, grab grab the suntan oil a little bit, you know. I'll grab that. Sunscreen. I'll grab that. Yeah. Already had already had some of that over the weekend. Yes. So uh, okay, That's trying to, to stay trying to keep you know stay healthy out there in the sun. All right, and like you say, when we get that sun, and we need some more of that. Sounds like we're going to warm up and uh, watch for those uh, pop up thunderstorms that you talked about. Thanks, Bryce. Take care. You're welcome, Mike. DTN meteorologist. Bryce Anderson. Up next, the pork industry really struggling uh, through COVID-19. Nick Giordano with the National Pork Producers Council joins us. Talk about what he hopes will be some more assistance when the Senate takes up another COVID package. And when might that be? We'll talk about it next on AOA. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now back to Mike Adams. So much happening over the weekend all across the country. Um, We kind of forget we're still in this pandemic situation, still dealing with COVID-19. Agriculture certainly still reeling from it. 
And we wait now to see what the Senate may do and when they may do it as far as any other assistance. Joining us now is Nick Giordano, Vice President and Counsel, Global Government Affairs for the National Pork Producers Council. Nick, thanks for joining us. I know that uh, the pork industry is uh, speaking out and working with those on Capitol Hill, especially in the Senate, to to share with them the, the needs that you have in the pork industry, the need for more help, more assistance. Yeah, Mike, it's um, MPPC's number one priority. We um, we appreciate what the Congress and the administration did in the, uh, the CARES Act, the third COVID package, but this is an unprecedented disaster in, uh, in the pork industry, and hog farmers simply need more. We're trying, MPPC's objective is to preserve as many hot farmers is is possible and that's that's going to be difficult so we're um we've asked our uh, our membership to you know talk to their senators they're they're doing that and uh we we know that there's likely to be a, a fourth covid package the house has already acted we um we need the senate to get moving and um hopefully that happens in june I think best case would be something by July 4th recess. Currently, the House isn't planning to come back until the end of end of June. So I think 4th of July would be best case. But um, absolutely got to have this before the the um, the August recess. It's very important to our, our producers. How much and what in what form are you asking for as far as assistance? Well, the the um, I mean that the House bill is dead on arrival. The Senate, it's a Democratic bill. Um, you know, I'm sure, and we love the livestock and ag provisions. And I think certainly beyond hog farmers, there's um, it's it's good broadly speaking for U.S. agriculture. And I'm sure there are other positive things for you know others that aren't partisan that Republicans and Democrats can agree on, but. Clearly, I mean, you know, you've you've heard Republicans react Um, The the bill as currently passed. The House is not going to make through the Senate. But politics is the art of compromise. I I think there there is going to be a fourth covid package and we really need those uh, livestock and ag provisions to uh, to get incorporated in. And and first and foremost, the um, the House. House provisions provide for compensation to producers for depopulation of livestock. That's really important. I mean, we we as a you know as a result of COVID and not being able to um, move hogs into the food chain and with you know unprecedented numbers of hogs backing up, the unfortunate reality is that hogs are having to be euthanized. And uh, this is through no fault of the, the, you know, the hog farmers. And this is, besides, you know, financially terrible for them, this is, you can imagine the emotional trauma this is exacting on them, their families, their workers. Um, so the House, um, the House bill provides for compensation for euthanized livestock. That's really important. It also supplements um, the direct payments in the CARES package. So it provides 
appropriates um, 16.5 billion in new money for direct payments to producers. Um, it also, and, and that's general across the board for, for farmers and ranchers. Um, and then it also amends the CCC charter to specifically reimburse um, livestock producers for the cost of euthanasia, removal, and disposal. And then um, finally, it provides $300 million to carry out the provisions of the Animal Health Protection Act. Now, first and foremost, that's going to mean getting money to the labs, to doing um, the animal labs for, for doing um, research and, ana- and analysis related to COVID. But that's, that funding, once the COVID crisis were over the hump, I, it could be available for things like um, African swine fever um, prevention, um, FMD vaccine bank, a lot of things that the livestock industry in the United States is very invested in. So our, our members are, have been and continue to, to talk with their senators and we can't uh, we can't get the Senate to act fast enough. We're talking with Nick Giordano with the National Pork Producers Council. Nick, I under, understand that some states, Iowa being one of them, already doing what they can to help uh, with this euthanization issue and and what to do with these animals. Yeah, and of course, um, well, not of course. A lot of listeners don't realize, but Iowa is our biggest state, but pork industry in the U.S. is in all 50 states. And, you know, there's critical mass of quite a few states, you know, at least 20 where we're a pretty significant presence. So we know that our our state organizations have been working as hard as national. We, of course, are coordinating closely with them and they're reaching out um, to, to try and get as much help and support through their states um, to hog farmers as well, and uh, kudos to the Iowa Pork Producers Association and Governor Reynolds and um, Ag Secretary Mike Mike Nang and others in the state for for getting that done. And we're hopeful that um, we we can also tap into resources in some other states as well. Nick, uh, what are you hearing as far as sign up for CFAP? Uh, what are you hearing from pork producers? How that's going? Yeah, they're they're engaged, and um, we we appreciate that um, USDA has got the the regs out. Also appreciate um, all, you know in the CARES Act, USDA also um, committed to some pork purchases for food banks. So that's all positive. Um, the the payment limit limits aren't as loose as we like. I think that's partially a function of um, not enough dollars to go around help everybody that's hurting um another reason for uh the senate to move quickly so that um more money ideally even more money than the house appropriated for direct payments um but i i think when you compare it for example to the msp payments that were made in connection with trade retaliation um, the limits have been loosened up so clearly you know usda is has heard MPPC and others, but we would like to get them looser. Um, I I know that those producers who are eligible um, appreciate it, and um, as I said, our number one priority is to get the Senate 
moving soon and to um to get more uh more relief delivered to um to hog farmers as you look at the situation the industry's facing what is the likelihood are we looking at a major contraction in in the industry as far as those involved in it producers getting out of business forced to get out of business are are you thinking that's a reality here a possibility it certainly is a possibility and um, you know there's been discussion about it both you know at the uh, academic and ag economist level the you know the the industry analyst level and you know i think among industry participants themselves mppc's role here is to try and keep as many producers whole as possible. Well, we're not going to be able to keep anybody whole, but to get a lifeline um, and meaningful relief to as many producers as, um, as possible. But certainly, um, you know, contractions, a possibility. Um, and, and, you know, it, the, the, um, the shape, the structure of the industry could change somewhat. I mean, there's a lot of people thinking and talking. There's been stuff in the media. Um, I, you know, I, I don't really know. And obviously that's, those sorts of decisions are going to be made by, you know, myriad mm-hmm. farmers and, uh, you know, CEOs and, you know, the market will make that decision. And that's, you know, going to be a lot of people, um, and it's, you know, it's MPPC's job just to continue to do the best by, um, members and, and, uh, we're, we're doing our best and we realize there's a lot of, a lot of pain and agony out there. It's a difficult time. Yeah. And we wait and see what's going to happen on the trade front with China. We're going to be talking about that in our next segment with the U S China business council. That's with the rhetoric between the U.S. and China right now, that's a growing concern as well. Nick, as always, thank you for the update, and we'll stay in touch. Appreciate it. Stay safe. Thanks for having me, Mike. Nick Giordano, Vice President and Counsel, Global Government Affairs for the National Pork Producers Council. Well, there was kind of a sigh of relief by many uh, on Friday when the president had his uh, announcement about China. Many feared it could be, you know, a back to tariffs and uh, almost a trade war if not a full-out trade war again he didn't go that far uh, but there's certainly tensions between the u.s and china now the hong kong issue as well we're going to talk about all that with jake parker senior vice president for the u.s china business council coming up next we'll talk about the phase one trade deal and the tensions between u.s and china stay with us you're listening to aoa information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. Welcome back. As we look at the uh, the tensions between U.S. and China, we're talking with Jake Parker, Senior Vice President, U.S.-China Business Council. Jake, thanks for being with us again. Uh, at the end of last week, uh, I mentioned earlier, there's kind of a sigh of relief when the President was talking about China. There were some thoughts that 
you know, with this, was he going to pull out of the phase one trade deal? Was Were there going to be more sanctions? So he talked about Hong Kong and that issue, and it wound up being a lot about the WHO, but uh, not so much about the trade deal. So, I mean, where are we with this, you think? Is there a real concern that the one or both parties could pull out of it? Hey, Mike. Well, well, thanks again for having me on the program. I, I think that when we talk to folks in the administration, there's a very real risk that President Trump sees some of the, the lack of progress on the purchases commitments as negatively impacting his overall view on the deal. In some of our conversations with administrative officials, they indicate that the president views the relationship not only through the commercial lens, which is, of course, defined by the phase one agreement, but also through the strategic, uh, the foreign affairs and the security side. And, and many in uh, the U.S. Trade Representative office, USDA, view the progress that they're making on phase one and echoing that China is is meeting its commitments as an important part of showing the president the progress is being made. We're very pleased to see that the Hong Kong announcements didn't include any kind of uh, language on phase one. But that being said, I think we also need to recognize that the Chinese government views the Hong Kong issue as a domestic sovereignty one and one that they're very sensitive to. So their retaliation, and we're beginning to see this, I think, with some of the Bloomberg reporting this morning that we can talk about if you'd like, uh, that they're looking for pressure points with the United States, uh, and hopefully that's not going to include agricultural purchases as part of the phase one agreement. Well, the story is out there that they had stopped buying uh, some of our ag products, but then we heard uh, today that it just met, they think that's a temporary situation. They've kind of caught up right now, uh, and their stock levels being enough that they can hold off for a while, but that it's assumed that they will resume those uh, purchases uh, what are you hearing? So what we're hearing from our member companies is that Chinese state firms are asking PNW offers on U.S. soybeans um, today from September forward and are questioning some of the reports that have been out there from Reuters and Bloomberg and others. That's from companies that are on the ground talking to the Chinese government. Um, so again, just personally, my perspective is that the Chinese government thinks broader and more strategically than some of the media outlets give them credit for. They view the constructive engagement that they're having commercially between the U.S. government and the Chinese government as one of the last channels that's open uh, to engagement between the two sides. It would, to me, seem out of character for them to throw out the progress made on phase one. And again, if they're not making those purchases and actively telling their state-owned enterprises not to, that's undermining the phase one agreement. That's the kind of action that would very much undermine the ability of that agreement to continue. And I don't personally, I don't see them making those kind of moves today. Yeah, and that's interesting. How big is the difference, Jake, between what we hear and see in the media from both the U.S. and China officials talking about these issues and what's really happening behind the scenes and on, you know, on the ground as far as trade uh, some we, we just watched the news and it sounds like, oh, it's all about to fall apart. And is it that bad in reality? What's going on between the two when it comes to trade? I think on the, the trade side, and as you know, the phase one agreement has both the structural commitments, liberalizing investment restrictions, and then the, the purchases side. On the structural side, things are moving forward pretty well. China's met almost all of its commitments in the phase one agreement. On the trade side, 
Uh, we're seeing purchases. We're hearing about them from our member companies. They're not at the scale that many would like, but they're certainly higher than they were the last two years. Uh, I, I think it's important for us to remember that the phase one agreement is based on annual purchase targets. So whatever commitments China needs to reach, they need to be done by December 31st, 2020. And there are no quarterly targets or no half yearly targets. So as you folks know very well, growing seasons don't happen in December. And as the planting and harvesting begins in earnest this summer, we're going to see that big uptick in Q3. And so I, I, it's just our hope that we don't take any rash actions now before the real opportunities to make significant at-scale purchases in the second half of the year. Yeah, from an overall business and trade standpoint, is there nervousness or is there still op- – I mean, we had so much optimism coming into the year – uh, but is, has that been replaced by nervousness or caution, or how would you describe it? I'd describe it as anxiety. I think just generally everyone can see the rhetoric from both sides, which has been overwhelmingly negative. And even if the trade is continuing and uh, we're, we're seeing positive signals on the ground, the rhetoric continues to deteriorate in a very uh, concerning way for many companies. And, uh, you know, that that anxiety comes to a head uh, when these friction points like Hong Kong emerge between the two sides. So anxiety is the word I'd use. And real quick, what about the move? And many are saying we need to bring jobs back to the U.S. We need to bring production back to the U.S. out of China. Uh, Strong feeling here in this country about that right now. How does that impact the relationship? Look, at the U.S.-China Business Council, we love the idea of employing more Americans and ensuring that there's a strong industrial base that's able to manufacture to meet the needs of our domestic economy. I think when we talk to our companies, they know that the reason they manufacture in China is is not to export to the U.S., but to, to access the local domestic Chinese market. You can't be competitive in China if you're exporting from the U.S., paying the logistics fees, paying the local taxes, the import costs as well, uh, and the jobs that the Manufacturing that's happening in China for China is supporting jobs here back in the United States. Again, if there are good, reasonable reasons for companies to be back in the U.S., we're very supportive of that. I think we're just worried that much of the manufacturing that would happen in the U.S. going forward is automated. Uh, Anyway, so I'll just leave it at that. Hmm. All right, Jake, we'll talk more about that in the future and stay in touch with you. Thank you so much. Stay well. We appreciate your time. My pleasure. Take care. Jake Parker, Senior Vice President, U.S.-China Business Council. So we're off and running in the month of June. Thanks for joining us. Stay safe. Hope you'll join us again tomorrow right here on AOA.